Ah, we love you, moms. You know, thinking about Mother's Day this week, I was thinking back on my own childhood and just memories of growing up and the quality of children. When we think about it, a child is so honest, so just out there with his or her thoughts. I mean, we know pretty quickly what a child is thinking and feeling, don't we? I mean, think about what we feed a a child about food. I mean, we get a child something they really like. What do they do? Mmm, this is yummy. But then we give them some peas and carrots, and then what happens? Yuck! Or we know how they feel about a trip. You know, we're going on a a road trip, and what are they usually saying? Are we there yet? Or at bedtime, we want to tuck them in, and they're saying, can I have a drink of water? So we give them the drink of water, and then what happens? Have to go to the bathroom. I mean, we know what's going on with them because they're so honest. Researchers, both professional and amateur, are really interested in the views of children. So many viewpoints about life, and recently there have been some studies conducted about how children view God or how they see God. Some answers to the questions of how do you see God were posed to several children, and this is what they commented. Who is God? Well, God is a man, and he lives in England. (laughs) God has giant ears so he can hear everything we are saying. God lives way up in space, so if you want to see God, you have to be an astronaut. How about this one? One girl thinks that God is the moral of every story. So if you read her a story, the moral of the story is God. Children are so honest, so trusting. You tell children that God loves them and and they believe you. You tell a child that God is capable of healing and wants to heal, and that child is going to be so confident to go up and just lay his or her hands on a parent or a friend, knowing that God wants to heal that person. Children are so open and honest and trusting. Trusting from the standpoint they can go up to someone, a parent, a grandparent, a teacher, and just open their hearts as long as that person is caring, concerned about them, and just delights in them. They're able to receive because they experience the love of someone else. It's easy to trust when you've had that experience of love. Would you do me a favor? Just take a moment and close your eyes. I want to ask you a question. And this won't take long. It won't hurt. But the question is this. How do you see God? How do you see God? You may open your eyes. Now, as soon as I ask that question, how many of you had an immediate picture of how you picture God? A few of you. Others of you... Did you have a word or an image that came to mind that's more of a a picture, word, like strong, mighty, any words in describing God that came to mind, okay? Of the picture that you just saw, or the word that came to mind, how many of those images or words are the same images you had since childhood? Okay, a few. How many would say that how you picture God or think about God has changed over the years based on different experiences you've had with God? 
Okay, more hands. Of all those images, pictures, those words that describe God, how many of those images or pictures describe a God that you want to be close to? Many. You see, the images and pictures of God being close to him often are formed in childhood. And they continue to develop the more we get to know God. Last week, we started a message series entitled Intimacy with God. And I would encourage you to pick up a CD or listen on the podcast, the teaching by uh, Van, our senior pastor. But Van introduced this idea is that relating to God or being close to God is very much a relational thing and not a transactional thing, which means that we just enjoy God for the sake of enjoying God and not just asking for prayer requests or God meeting our needs. And so that was a great introduction. And I want to continue talking about intimacy with God, but I think it's necessary to define what intimacy is. Because the word intimacy is so sexualized in our culture that as soon as I say intimacy, often people's minds will go to the sexual aspect. That's only a small part of intimacy. Intimacy also includes the emotional aspect, the spiritual aspect, relational closeness. Intimacy invites us to know or to be known by someone. John Calvin, a famous pastor in church history, believed that intimacy or knowing is vital to being an emotionally healthy person and a healthy follower of Christ. Calvin wrote that one cannot truly know God without knowing oneself and that one cannot know self without knowing God. This knowing is more than just head knowledge of facts. The knowledge of facts of May, June, July. We know that June follows May. We know the fact that fall is coming. That there is a third quarter, fourth quarter. We know the fact that Columbus, Ohio is the capital of Ohio. Those are known facts in our head. But knowing involves experiencing with our emotions, of experiencing the feelings, the joy of relationship. Knowing is experiencing communication just for the fun of it. And in relationship with with God, just this communication of going down a grocery store aisle, pushing the cart and saying, God, thank you for just the options here. Thank you for laughter and for this food. Or seeing the, su- the sunrise or the sunset and say, wow, God, you're such a beautiful artist. Or going for a walk and listening to the birds singing and say, wow, God, the birds, they're so happy in the morning. I love that. But God, I don't understand this whole thing with birds because when they start flying, they get really messy and do terrible things on my hair. And I don't understand that. You see, that's the type of relationship we can have with a God that we draw close to. Today, I want to talk about the qualities of a God that we can draw close to. The greatness of God, his protection, his nurturing, all aspects of a God who wants to be close to us in our everyday lives. Before we jump into that, let's pray together. 
So God, thank you that you're here and that you're close. We just open our hearts to, to learn about you, to receive your goodness and care for us today. Just show us who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. The first quality I would like to look at is God's greatness. And the book of Deuteronomy, a book in the Old Testament, tells us about God's greatness in these words. And I'll be reading from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 3 and 4. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness or give credit to, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Deuteronomy chapter 32 is a song written by Moses while Moses is wandering around in the desert with the nation of Israel. They spent 40 years wandering in the desert, desert and they're two months away from crossing into this new land that God has promised them. So they're on this side of the Jordan River looking over to the other side. And Moses along with them realizing that human nature being as it is so often knowing that as they go into that new land, it's going to be easy to forget the closeness of this God who really loves them. It's going to be easy for them to look at the things they can touch and see and buy and control. And Moses is writing the song in essence and saying, hey, you better stay close to this God who loves you because life is going to be really, really tough apart from him. So he continues writing this song and he says that God is the rock. And that image of a rock in the Old Testament was of a huge mountain that as people became afraid, as as enemies were bearing in on them, is that they could run to this mountain and there would be security and safety. And he's saying that God is this rock that we can go to for protection. He then urges the people to give God credit for a cluster of qualities that define greatness. And those clusters of qualities include perfection, faithfulness, justice, and righteousness. And this cluster shows that God works to bring completion and wholeness to all of creation. That God works to bring completion and wholeness to all of humankind. This God who desires to draw close is about wholeness and completion in everything that he's made. God is dependable and faithful to follow through on what he starts to and fulfill all the promises he makes. If God says he's going to do it, he'll do it. There's no broken promises with God. God is righteous and full of justice. That means he is not stained or corrupted by all the wrong actions or wrong thinking in life. God is totally separated from that. God will do what needs to be done. He's not going to procrastinate or neglect taking care of things. God always acts in accordance with what is right. He has the final say because he is the final say. He does not ignore or excuse the wrong actions or choices or disobedience of angels or humans that violate his rightness. He must destroy that which separates an angels and humans 
He must destroy what separates us from his rightness. He does not show partiality or favoritism. Kind of blows our minds, doesn't it? That here is a God and all that greatness and justice and rightness. And then we hear about that and it's almost mind-boggling. Or it comforts us or it scares us. Depending on where we come from, we're comforted or scared. Many of us here today have experienced the pain of being treated unfairly. We know what it's like to be overlooked or rejected due to the color of our skin or to the size of our bodies. We understand what it's like to feel the rejection based on our gender or what part of the country or background or culture we come from. And to know that God does not discriminate is very comforting. Is that to know that God will work justice is life assuring and healing. But there are those of us that have grown up in families and schools and churches where the qualities of God's justness and rightness are highlighted above everything else. Is that the experience that we, we know is the wrath of God? And that, that whole terminology of when we think of God being just and right means that he's going to whack us for any decision we make. And so that's what we think of. And to talk about God being just and right as a pastor is pretty tough because to talk about it means either people are going to be comforted or scared. And so if we tend to ignore talking about God's justice or righteousness, then we downplay an important quality of who he is. See, the truth is God's love and justice cannot be separated. They're the same package. See, God's love is so passionate for you and me that he will aggressively, eagerly go after and destroy anything that separates the closeness that we can have from with him. He will pursue after us with such a passionate love. He says, I am not going to let that destroy your life because I want to be close to you. That's love and justice working together. And the power of that love and justice is at once beautiful and incredible, dangerous and comforting all at the same time. An example came to me that may help. A few years ago, my wife Sharon and I went to Niagara Falls on our way to Toronto, Canada. It was the first time I'd ever seen Niagara Falls, and so walking along, looking at the, the river that's rushing toward the, the falls. It's just like this exhilaration of watching the water just flow over the rocks. And the, the closer it gets to the edge of the waterfalls, it's like, yeah, that's exciting. So it was a beautiful scene just watching from a distance the waterfall. But in those days, several years ago, and I don't know if you can still do this, but you could actually go underneath the falls, behind the falls, into the mountain. And where you could actually walk up to the edge like I am of this stage and be near the waterfalls. There was a railing here to keep people from going into the waterfall. But you're standing there and there's this rush and this roar of the water. And you feel the mist coming against your face and there's just this refreshment and joy. 
and this peacefulness. But what would have happened if in my own arrogance, my own risk-taking decided, hey, I'm going to step over the railing here into the waterfalls. (laughs) Somebody said, bye-bye. Yeah, (laughs) kind of dangerous. Or, hey, I've been training for a triathlon. I'm going to go swim the river, and I'm going to swim upstream against this powerful current, against the flow, against the rightness of the flow of the water because there is a rightness in the flow of the water toward the waterfall. Wouldn't have been very smart of me to go against the rightness of the flow of the river. That's what it's like to experience that just and rightness of God and all of his beauty and all of his peace and all of the danger and all of the love all at once. In verses 10 and 11 of Deuteronomy, we see other qualities of God. Let's read verses 10 and 11 from Deuteronomy 32. He found them wandering through the desert, a desolate windswept wilderness. He protected them and cared for them as he would protect himself. Like an eagle teaching its young to fly, catching them safely on its spreading wings, the Lord kept Israel from falling. We see the qualities in these verses of God being a protector and nurturer. A protector and nurturer. And Moses is writing this part of the song as he's just wandering around the desert with his friends. Experiencing the day in, day out routines of life and the heat. Of experiencing God's provision of food and water as well as God encouraging them to keep at it in the desert. Moses describes God as nurturing, like a mother eagle teaching her eaglets to fly, urging them to flap their wings and and to leave the nest, but as they leave the nest, to, to swoop in under them, to catch them when they're heading toward danger. I did some brief research on how eagles learn to fly, and you know there are contradictory viewpoints of how people believe they learn to fly. I had no idea there were so many different ways that people describe eagles learning to fly. The one view says that a mother eagle will get near the nest, outside the nest, and will flap her wings. And as she flaps her wings, and then the the eaglets will start flapping their wings and say, look at me, mommy, I'm doing it. They flap their wings and and instinctively she'll go into the nest and push them out of the nest. And they're going, and suddenly she'll swoop in underneath them and return them to the safety of the nest. Thanks, mom. Here you go again. She swoops in under them, takes them back to the nest. That's one viewpoint. The other viewpoint says, no, that's not it at all. And, that's, and it's like, really? I mean, it's a pretty good image. But people said, oh, no, that's not the image at all. Here's how it's really done. Is that the young eaglets will eat, and they'll sit around in the nest, and finally they'll go, hey, what are these for? And they'll start flapping. Hey, I think I'm going to go for a fly. They sweep out and they'll head towards some dangers. Like, nah, I'm tired here. And they'll go back to the nest. Well, that was fun. What's for dinner? And they will wait for the mother eagle to come and feed them and care for them. 
And then they'll say, well, that was fun. That was good. Here I go again. And the, the eagles instinctively return to the nest over and over to find nourishment and care and rest as they're learning to take the risk to fly away from the nest. I think both images are good lessons for us because it tells that there is a nurturing parent who is there that as we begin to take the risk of life, as we begin to, to step out into new areas of adventure, new jobs, new ministry, new relationships, is that we think that we're going to crash, is that God is there to swoop in as that loving parent and says, I've got you. Just come and rest. Come and just be fed by my love for you. And then go again. That nurturing, protecting parent. I've told many of you this before. For those of you I don't know, part of my story is that I grew up in a single parent family. My mom it was a great mom and is a great mom. And she worked long hours providing for us. But I did not have a dad around. I had no male figure around in my house. And so that was a part of my life that, uh, truthfully, God is continuing to heal in my life experientially of him being a good father. And there are times in my life that, it, that God would orchestrate friendships with guys, parents of my friends who were great dads, coaches, teachers, pastors over the years, that could really model what it meant to be a good dad or a good husband. And that was always so helpful. It was always so encouraging to me. But there are times when I am very discouraged or I'm tired or I'm overwhelmed is that God visits me directly with his love. And one of the ways that he does that is that often during singing, like we'll be doing a little bit later, or just sitting quietly, is that there's this image of God just holding me. And the image is God sitting in a rocking chair, and I love rocking chairs. And God is just sitting in that rocking chair just with his arms around me holding me, holding me tight. That image is so healing for me. Because in that moment, I am experiencing the direct closeness of God, who is my protector and my nurturer. How do you see God today? The qualities of God's greatness, the qualities of God being a protector and nurturer continue on into the New Testament. And we see those qualities specifically in the life of Jesus, which there should be no surprise at that because Jesus is God. And in Luke 9, verse 51, we read that Jesus is a determined, confident commander. Qualities of God's greatness. Let's read what verse 51 of Luke 9 says. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. In March, I did a message about Jesus as warrior king, and I would refer you back to that for more detail. The point of the message was that Jesus is this determined, confident warrior king who defeats the powers of darkness, who wages war against Satan on our behalf. And because Jesus 
wages war against Satan. We can be free from sin. That we can experience healing from sickness. That the power of death can have no grip on us. And that's the image of, of Jesus in this, in this verse. Is that Jesus is at a point in the countryside that he's in the north in Palestine, which is way up here. And Jerusalem is to the south. And it's at a point where Jesus being in the north can look out on the plains and look toward Jerusalem. And it says that he set his face toward there. Because he knew it was time for him to be received up. To be received up to go and die on the cross. To resurrect and go into heaven. But Jesus is looking with his face determined that the mission is going to be accomplished. See, Jesus is standing on a place of historical significance. He says, here's the place where often armies from other nations would come as they were getting ready to invade Jerusalem. The armies would rest in this spot and they would erect statues to their gods just to mock the one true God of Israel. They would erect the statues to intimidate the people in Jerusalem and beyond. And then they would set out toward Jerusalem from this spot to conquer. That's what Jesus is doing here. Is that he's setting his face toward Jerusalem determined and strong, anticipating the battle. So he begins the march into Jerusalem. Yet as he's moving in anticipation toward this final battle, he is moved by compassion. And we see Jesus become very nurturing in Luke 13, verse 34. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus marching as a strong king. He had experienced the sadness of the people rejecting him. Jesus came to restore closeness to the Father, to gather them into a place of closeness, but people rejected. Not all did, but many did. But even when we reject his offers of love, he continues to want us close. Greatness of God. God the protector and nurturer. There's lots of qualities of God, too numerous to, to go over today, but there's one more that I think is worth mentioning. And it's the quality that a lot of Bible scholars, a lot of theologians don't spend time writing about. And I'm thinking, why don't they write about this? Because this is important. But it's the qualities of humor and playfulness. We see Jesus in his humor and playfulness. And we see that in Luke 13, verse 32. And he, Jesus, said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I will reach my goal. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of the day. The religious leaders are called Pharisees. And Pharisees came in all varieties. Some Pharisees were very pleased with how they looked. They would walk down the street and look at my good deeds. 
I helped a person last week. Here, good man, come and have this quarter. Oh, God must love me, for I am a good person. That's one kind of Pharisee. There are the Pharisees that were procrastinators. Yeah, I guess we should get around to helping with that project tomorrow down at the East Wall in Jerusalem and help feed some people, but yeah, I think I'll wait till tomorrow. I don't know. Does that sound a little bit like us? I, I don't know. Then there are the Pharisees that are just always afraid. They're always afraid of the wrath of God, that unless they follow the, the right rules, unless they keep the right guidelines, is that God is going to be very, very angry with them. And so they lived in constant fear. One writer commented they were not helped but haunted by their religion. And then there were the God-loving Pharisees that really admired and respected Jesus and wanted to hear what he was saying because there were words of life there. And they were intrigued at how, how Jesus spoke of his father. And it was this group of Pharisees that actually liked and admired Jesus that, that warned him, said, Hey, Jesus, you better get out of here because Herod, the king, has a contract out on your head, so you better get out of here quickly. This is a serious situation. Jesus is here hearing about this death threat. And what's he say? Well, you go and tell that old fox. It would be like us saying, you go tell that old sly dog this. Or you go and tell that four-legged, conniving creature of creation that this is going to happen. It's the humor of Jesus. And he used it in other interactions. Matthew chapter 7 tells us of Jesus' teaching on different topics. And he talks about this tendency of people to judge other people. To make an evaluation of their lives and how they're living and what they're doing and not doing. He says, you don't really want to go there because here's what it's like. He says, some people when they're wanting to judge, they want to go over and just kind of pick the sawdust out of someone's eye. And so they're picking that sawdust out. But all the time, they've got a two by four sticking out of their, their eye themselves. So as they're digging that sawdust, hey, how you doing? Whack! Oh, I, don't, I can't tell you because I just got hit with a board. Like, what? What, Jesus? Why are you saying that? Yeah, when we judge people, it's like whacking them with a two by four. Or another example of Jesus talking with his friends, and there was a young man who came to Jesus who was like one of those good Pharisees saying, Hey, I've done all these good things, and you should be so proud of me. And Jesus challenged him about giving up his wealth because that dependency on his wealth was taking the focus on God's provision in his life. And Jesus is saying, yeah, you know, there are people that they just get so preoccupied with their wealth and the things they do and, and their own security and creating their own security that they just lose focus with me. He said, you know, this is, let me give you an illustration. He says, do you see that camel over there? The one, yeah, that nasty one that just spit over the ground. Yeah, that one. You see that one? Hey, you got a needle? I know you do because your mom gave it to you to darn your, your robe. Can I have that? 
Okay, you see this needle and that little eye in that needle? And you see that nasty camel over there? It is easier for that nasty camel to come over here and go through this teeny eye than it is to get into the kingdom of heaven. They're going, what, Jesus, what's that about? They get really serious. So why is Jesus in the middle of these really serious conversations showing some humor and playfulness? Well, I think he is doing that to show us we should not take ourselves so seriously. You see, in our lives, we get so caught up with how well we're performing. Wow, if I, if I just go do this, then, then I know that I'm just going to feel peace with God. Or, wow, I'm just not good enough here, so I've got to clean myself up first before I go to church, and then hopefully the uh, ceiling won't fall in on me. But I've been doing pretty well lately. You see, the focus goes so much on ourselves. And Jesus said, wait a minute. He shakes us out of that whole self-evaluation and that self-performance that somehow we've got to earn God's love. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to do that. You just got to be loved. Because I'm here to just love you. I'm here to receive you and show concern. I trust you. You know, sometimes we become like the Pharisees. So we become so preoccupied with what we're doing to please them. Or we become such procrastinators from being risk takers, from flying out of the nest, so to speak, because we're so preoccupied with how we're going to do and how we're going to perform. And we're afraid. And Jesus is saying, take the risk. Take the risk to relate differently. Take the risk to be loved. Take the risk to know power that you haven't experienced before. Would you do me a favor and close your eyes again? I'd like to ask you a question. How do you see God? Just keep your eyes closed for a moment. How do you see God? And how has this message shifted any of your thinking? How has this message reinforced the image you have of God? How do you personally need to experience God today? Keep your eyes closed. I realize that Mother's Day just can be tough for many of us. It could be a reminder of a relationship between a mom and daughter or a mom and son that's not as it could have been. Mother's Day can be painful because of just losing a mom. Mother's Day can be painful because it touches on the pain of just losing a child for, for numerous reasons. Or the grief of not having a child. But God is here today to draw close to us. You see, God is here as that nurturing parent who understands our pain. 
who wants to hold us closely in our grief. Let him draw close to you. He understands the unfairness. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He wants to speak to your heart today as only he can. So God, we just ask that you would do that. I'm just going to invite the worship band to make their way up and Amanda as we conclude this part of our service. But just continue to keep your eyes closed. Lord, we invite you to come and just to encounter us as only you can with your love, with your healing. Pray that you would just take all the, the stuff that we've come in with today and that you would just exchange it with your presence and your hope. Just help us to see you and to experience you more as we give and as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.